Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the second episode of Histopoly, the podcast that comes at you about history and hopefully tries its best to relate that to the current times. I'm your host, once again, Will, and today I think we got something a little bit interesting for you guys. We're going to be breaking down right before World War One, and I know that is a topic that a lot of people may know about but kind of skip over for that grand slice of world war ii everyone's favorite war for the reason of it's got great bad guy great good guys fun battles who doesn't love a good old world war ii movie world war ii documentary world war one it's gaining in popularity you know it's it's getting a little bit more mainstream we had you know it being the backdrop of a, of a few big movies uh, some video games came out around it, um, but lesson-wise, it's it's a bit more of a skip over war, which is interesting because it really is the first modern war that we're going to see, especially on such a global scale like this. It's probably one of, if not the most influential war prior to um, the Second World War and then the eventual Cold War quote-unquote, war. But today we're not even going to be focusing on any of those battles or or really even the actual war itself besides a little bit of the beginning before all the main people, characters really come together. Um, Today we're really focusing on that build-up beforehand because that build-up beforehand is honestly almost more important than the war itself. Just like the eventual treaty that comes afterwards and the ideas that are pushed forward afterwards on globalization uh, are a bit more important than the, what actually goes down in those trenches, which is which in itself is important for for other reasons, but those more military, mil, militarily and economically, that's when that war becomes a little bit more important for that reason. But when you're looking at a more political side like we are going to be today, before and after is a little bit more important. Today we're focusing on before. So just to give a little bit context for why a lot of people put this as like the window into the more modern geopolitical climate that the world and Europe finds itself in today is because beforehand, the dynamic was radically different. Um, There was a lot of different uh, things. And a lot of that goes down to uh, the intermarried system between the monarchs this growing alliance system that we're about to get into and technology shifting changes a lot. Uh, And of course, nationalism has really been brought to the forefront, uh, starting with the First World War, the Great War. That'll be referred to at this time, and I'll probably refer to it as that interchangeably. So notably wise, in World War I, Britain and France are allies. And honestly, In the modern age, Britain and France are exceptionally close allies uh, because of their time together in World War I and World War II. But prior to that, Britain and France, extreme rivals, which I think you do see if you study, uh, if you studied American history, you see that in the French and Indian War, uh, American Revolution, it continues through. Post that, it's always a debate, where is America going to fall between Britain and France? And that was kind of the stance of the world. Before that, they were the two major powers, colonies all over the world. 
that gets a lot of different people and cultures involved. Brendan France, greatest rivalry. But on the turn into the 19th century and the late 1800s, that shift starts changing a bit. Britain and France's hostilities start to cool off post uh, France's revolution. And then once Napoleon's kind of caked out, Britain has a little bit more influence inside of France and they become a lot more friendly, which might be its own separate episode that I'll do one day is that dynamics conclusion. But just for the point of this, just know Britain and France have become much closer at this time than they were at any point in history, which is scary for a lot of the world as those were just the two major powers, and they still held a lot of power. Um, but what's more important with France's rivalry is they kind of adapt a new rival in, in their next-door neighbor, Germany, who has recently unified uh, and recently just destroyed France in a war. Um, the, the Franco-Prussian War and the, the conflicts between Germany and France uh, go, have been going on at this point for a good period of time, and that that tension and hostility is really ripe over that over their border territory there, um, where eventually you'll see the Maginot Line in in World War II, and they'll loop around those trenches later with the Schlieffen Plan, which I'll get into in World War One. But that territory is a lot of tension in Europe because it, it's flipping back and forth between France and Germany for an extended period of time at this point, and they have both kind of adapted that territory as a core part of their nation so to them it's like it's not just an expansion thing it's like this is part of us for both france and germany and now uh what's even more confusing about this is just on a quick side note before i forget about it um so monarchy is obviously pretty prevalent still at this point at the early 1900s this is kind of right before the big fall of monarchy uh, the, the, the final fall of monarchy in Europe, uh, all the monarchs that are left, really all related. Uh, Britain's king, Germany's kaiser, and uh, Russia's czar, all cousins. All got the same grandma, which is just, to me, on a side note, is just so interesting that a single family could have so much influence on an entire continent and eventually the entire globe uh, it's, just, it's just really interesting that it ends up being a 2v1 cousin-wise. Uh, never mind the, the high probability that, that, they're, that they're related to the Austria-Hungary uh, ruler, the, 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 the Serbians. I mean, uh, it's, everyone's connected at this point at the higher-ups, which is just... Which, like, in my last episode, I just talked about how America was trying to get away from this monarchy system and everyone, just the same people ruling everything, just end up with the same people ruling everything. Um, that is interesting that we are now, you know, 150 years post the revolution, Europe is still going through that with their monarchs. Uh, obviously their powers have been limited at this point, but, you know, German Kaiser, Russian Tsar, a lot of power at this time. Britain's king, still a lot of power at this time. This is really right before they, they all fall off. But besides the point, that doesn't really affect the war. It's more just like an interesting fact that I'm sure your history teacher might throw in there. You might throw in there to show off that you know about it at, I don't know, what kind of conversation at a cocktail party that's happening. But let's say you're in a cocktail party about World War One. Throw that fact in there. Always fun. Uh, throw in that the British Empire actually uh, 
the British king actually changed his last name to pretend that he wasn't related to Germany. Uh, totally was. And that's where the Windsor name comes from. They just kind of picked it up because they're like, uh, totally not German, I swear. They totally were German. Uh, anyway, going on past that uh, into into the, the building tensions across Europe, um, Russia is is a closer with France and Britain at this time, mostly just on the fact we all don't like Germany. Uh, Germany was a new power in World War I. They're really just stretching their legs into what they can and cannot do. And uh, Russia didn't like that. Russia's pretty close to Germany. And Germany keeps supporting Austro-Hungary, who keeps taking Slavic lands, which, according to Russian tradition at that time and Russian ideology at that time, is Slavic people and Russian people one and the same no matter what country it is. They're kind of like the bodyguard for the Serbians, the Bosnians, all of them at this time. And Russia's feeling a lot of tension. They're kind of gearing up for a war on Russia's side because they keep losing wars. And, like, global power-wise, it was kind of embarrassing for them. Like, when they they got beat by the Japanese, they kind of got pushed... Their allies kind of got pushed back by Austro-Hungary. They just felt like they couldn't get a win. And they thought that in a conflict with Germany and Austria, that if they were mobilized soon enough, which we'll see they kind of do, they 100% can take Germany, Austria, Hungary, as long as France hops in kind of to help them out, which we see happening. That's why they get close to with France and Britain. Austria-Hungary, that I was just mentioning, um, was on the verge of many crises. A lot was happening in Austria-Hungary. They were a very, very unstable empire, as they were just kind of a conglomerate of other countries, and they had a hard time kind of getting this uh, idea of an Austria-Hungarian people. They, they, they were really struggling with that. People in the South, obviously the Serbian, the Black Hand group, which will later assassinate Franz Ferdinand, they don't see themselves Austria-Hungary. Even Franz Ferdinand was actually pretty outspoken about kind of being a, a little bit more liberal on that idea, that he kind of thought Austria-Hungary wasn't so much a people and it was like the empire, but you could have your own identity. He was kind of leaning towards giving the Serbians more rights, which is why it's so ironic that of all people for the Black Hand to assassinate, uh, Princip shoots him. Uh, it, that That is a, an interesting move. It's more just to offend the Austro-Hungary Empire than really what Franz Ferdinand stood for. Um, but Austro-Hungary like I've said, was unstable, and they knew that they were close to so many wars. Russia doesn't like them. Uh, the, all the Slavic regions to the south of them don't like them. Uh, Italy and Austria-Hungary have a lot of conflicts over South Tyrol, um, which is the province in, bet in between them at the time, currently owned by Austria-Hungary, I believe, right before World War I. Uh, obviously, post-World War I, Italy snagged that, luckily, for them. Um, but... They just have all these allies in every part of them. They get very cozy, cozy with the new strong Germany. And Germany basically gives them a blank check agreement uh, before, I mean, right after uh, Princip shoots Ferdinand that basically says, if Serbia doesn't capitulate fully to you, we got your back in this war because we know Russia's going to hop in. And Germany's like, I'll definitely take some Russian land. So they're like, 
uh, I'll help you out. But Germany kind of does this more so when you really look at it. Uh, I think a lot of history books like to make Germany look like this war-hungry country at the time because that's what they are like in World War II. But this is a very different Germany than World War II. It is extremely different. Uh, World War II is a country of desperation and uh, it, through dictatorship. Where World War One is a country that's a, that that's just expanding. It's a brand new country that really thinks it can make its mark in the world, and it's not so different than a France or a Britain or a Russia or an Austria-Hungary. The, there is no. That's why World War One's more interesting, is because you you look so desperately for a bad guy, and kind of no one's the good guy, kind of no one's the bad guy, because Germany doesn't want a war here. They think if they go in with Austria-Hungary and say, "Hey, we got your back." This will cause Serbia to kind of be like, we can't take them both on. We're just gonna we're just gonna give in to their demands. Austria-Hungary kind of misreads this as Germany wants to go to war, so we're gonna send Serbia the most absurdly uh, overreaching compromise, quote unquote, that we can possibly find, and that's the first misunderstanding with this alliance system uh, that leads to the war. Um, but basically, people call the 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 Baltic states at this time like a um, a, a powder uh, a powder keg. That's a, that's a common term. But truly, in my opinion, the powder keg of World War One is this alliance system and the lack of telecommunicative technologies at the time that makes it so hard to understand really what your allies want and what your enemies want. That is what causes a lot of problems. Because now we see Austria-Hungary send this letter to to Serbia post the assassination, um, saying all these absurd things, basically like Serbia has no more power over the country, and Austria-Hungary, it's been just a full part of Austria-Hungary. Uh, with with that's such an oversimplification of the document, but that's that's basically what they're saying is. You have nothing anymore. We have everything. And Serbia kind of sends a letter back, obviously refusing these demands. But it's a very, like, weak-worded letter, basically kind of capitulating, kind of saying, we don't want, we don't want you to attack us. Uh, all these things kind of striving for more peaceful resolution and so they don't, you know, lose thousands, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, they're kind of saying, we give in, but not to all of this. So Germany sees that as like, okay, I guess we're not going to war, because Austria-Hungary has no army mobilized. Uh, Serbia just kind of gave up, but just doesn't want to fully say it. So Germany's kind of like, okay, we're good. So they don't even really mobilize fully either. Russia, on the other hand, has been in pre-mobilization at this point for a long period of time. Because like I said, if any country wanted a war at this time, it's Russia. Which is hilarious because it goes absolutely the worst for Russia. But uh, it, it's for Russia, this war, at the time. So they are pre-mobilization. Uh, basically just getting uniforms ready, guns ready. It's basically mobilization, but they're just not saying it. So then, before Serbia even declines this... Which is why, in my opinion, Russia most likely had an ear or a, or a mouth in Serbia more so than they let on. 
Um, Russia was mobilizing before the letter even got to Austria-Hungary, before they even saw what Serbia's reaction was according to their official documentation at the time. Uh, they're mobilized. They're ready to go. They're on the border. So Germany sees this and is like worried, but not like so worried because they think Austria-Hungary is about to avoid this. So Germany is thrown off when out of nowhere, Austria-Hungary is like, no, we're going in with no with no army ready because it's during their harvest season. So everyone's farming. All their male citizenry who should be fighting is farming because it's really hard to fight a war with no food. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's really, really hard on an empty stomach to fire a gun and to run across a field and sit, lay in a trench. Um, so Germany is confused by that. And it, it, that, was, that was an interesting moment for, for the, the war because at, at that point, it looks like Russia is about to just destroy Germany and Austria-Hungary, especially once France hops in and France is like, hey... We're Russia's buddy. We like Serbia. We're also in this. And Germany's like, damn, this just got a bit tougher because now we're on two fronts. We kind of saw this coming. Austria-Hungary, we didn't really think we were ready yet. But if you say so, okay. So, and this is when Germany starts getting its bad rep because it, it makes a series of unfortunate errors in, in, a, in, in their battle strategy, which usually I don't like to cover battle strategy too much in these but I think this is important. So Germany knows it can't fight a war on two fronts. Uh, and it knows Austria-Hungary certainly can barely manage one. So they decide France is an easier target. We can just push through them really quickly. And then all we have to do is focus on Russia. Russia is the bigger threat, in their opinion. So they adopt the Schlieffen plan, which is basically we're going to rip through Belgium we're going to run around France because they think we're going to push through that territory that we've been fighting in for the past 50 years. We're going to flip around and go through Belgium, and then we're going to march right through easy, snag them up uh, like they would later do in World War II when they actually adapt this, adopt the strategy again. But in World War I, it doesn't go as well because weaponry is different. Uh, the trench system slows up, uh, pushes, and of course just... France had a better military at this time than it did in World War II, comparative to Germany. And Russia didn't have as good of an army as they would later on. So that's that's an interesting flip, which is why Germany is a little bit more successful in this exact same strategy in World War II than World War I. But in, in World War I here, we have Russia pushing, but then they have their own internal problems, which the Russian Revolution would be so much to explain, but everyone knows Russian Revolution, they withdraw from the war later on. Before they can withdraw, a new person gets thrown in when they push through Belgium. Uh, Belgium's closest ally is Great Britain, who kind of didn't hop in with the rest of the Entente right away because it was just a regional conflict in their opinion at first because it, it was just a small state in Southeast uh, Europe who expected it to break into a massive world war. Uh, no one at this time, absolutely no one really knew that was going to happen. Now we can look back and see how it happened. But at the time, it, it was really a stunning development. But anyway, Great Britain hops in because they marched through Belgium. That's its own problem. Of course, Germany later throws in America when uh, they, they sink the Lusitania, 
when they make a million errors, when they send the Zimmerman telegram, they just, Germany just makes extensive errors of aggression once in the war. And a lot of that can be blamed on Kaiser Wilhelm, who was a little bit of a, of a militarist, who was a bit overzealous in his nationalism, uh, like a future German leader. Um, but Kaiser Wilhelm makes that mistake here, for sure, which dooms him. Obviously, we have Russia exit. Uh, we know how the war ends. But it was a really close war when you look at it. Much closer than World War II is. World War I really just, the reason they eventually lost is because Germany's two allies were two failed empires already. The Ottoman Empire and the Austria-Hungarian Empire were already declining. They were already falling apart. And once they were eventually unstable enough through this war to collapse and capitulate, Germany was doomed. And now, like I said before, the after, uh, just to skip over really quick, uh, the Treaty of Versailles, the reason they pushed so much of it on Germany is, like I said, uh, Germany's mistakes during the war of hyperaggression. So it was easy to flip a lot of the blame onto Germany when truly there is no one party to blame. It's just, cir- it's just circumstantial. It's just a problem with, hey, we're all tied up in these alliances and we're all tied up in these tensions and trying to prove who's the best right now. We don't fully understand this technology, so the death count's going to be spiked up. I mean, it, it was a small regional issue between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, but because of this weaved web of alliances and pride, it, it, it fell apart. I mean, it, if there was just a bit more communication, the war wouldn't have even started between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. I mean, there had been problems there for so long, that when you look at it, it's actually shocking that it exploded into a world war. It, it, it's shocking because who would have who would have guessed that this time was just too much? I can tell you, it probably wasn't Gavrilo Princip, the guy who shot Franz Ferdinand. I don't think he intended to start the first world war to eventually lead to the second world war that would eventually lead to the Cold War that eventually lead to the current state that we find the United States in today. Yeah, that was not his intention with that bullet. His intention was just, I don't like this guy. I'm a Serbian nationalist. I don't like this guy because he don't like me. That's it. So that is a... So that's like a pretty simplified breakdown of the alliance system and kind of why it's such a problem. Why is it such a problem to look at... to look at uh, World War One as, as something just like a basic, oh, that was just like World War Two. Because it's not, it's so different. The alliance system that was set up was so scary that it almost led to a little war. Because alliance systems are kind of bred for that. I mean, when you look at the Cold War, every time the Cold War almost went hot is because an ally got into a problem with one of their allies. Because North Vietnam and South Vietnam had a problem. Because North Korea and South Korea had a problem. Because Cuba had a problem. It's never the actual main people themselves. It wasn't like a German shot a French person. It was a Serbian shot an Austro-Hungarian. An ally of an ally led to this major global conflict which shapes our entire modern perception of geopolitics now. Because after this war, we say, hey, let's try to prevent this communication error by establishing the League of Nations, which ultimately fails because it's just not put together well. And then now we have the United Nations, which has its own millions of problems, but 
it, it, it helps for for what it does. There's never been a world war when we have the United Nations. So that's what it was set up to do. And that's what it's done. So if, if that's how we're grading it, that idea worked. Because communication is the main reason that this war escalated to the point that it did. Because it's so easy at this time to twist the words to what you want it to be, to twist the narrative to what you want it to be, both before and after this war. Before the war, we're twisting it to try to get to war, or try to get away from war, and then after the words, we twist it to be Germany's fault because uh, we have a lot of debt and I don't want to pay it. Germany should pay it. I'm sure that will have no repercussions. But yeah, this was such an oversimplification uh, of, of one specific reason that led to World War I happening because there were probably hundreds, if not thousands of reasons that it, that it ended up happening. But that's all I'm going to cover today because we're already at the 25-minute mark. And uh, how long can you really listen to World War I uh, alliance breakdowns? But if you have any questions, please reach out on our socials at Histopoly on Twitter. Uh, you can leave uh, some feedback on some of the podcast sites that this is going to be up on. If you can, just reach out, get our contact, Google us. Uh, we're always happy to, to talk a little bit more about any of the things that we cover here on Histopoly. Um, so yeah, that's been episode two. Hopefully, you understand a little bit more of what went down prior to the Great War, as it's often called. Uh, if you have any ideas, have any recommendations, again, reach out to us. Subscribe. Download. We love your feedback. We love hearing from you. We love talking about history with you. So, uh, I think I've been well. I think that's been Histopoly. And I think we're checking out.